The year is 2025. And in this futuristic vision, one of the most popular sports to sort of uh, grab hold of the public consciousness is a sport called Future Sport. And when the film begins <laughs> in the self-titled... Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm doing it different than I normally do, and now I'm confused. <laughs> the future's got you all turned around. <laughs> um, uh, let me just do it normal, I think. <laughs> policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh. And as always, I'm here with... Andrew Stasiulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts picks a topic and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that topic. And we get on here and run the gauntlet, as it were. It's episode 33, and it was my topic for this week. I was thinking about, you know, the new year, the new decade, and so I asked my comrades here to bring... Movies from the past set in the 2020s so we could explore some uh, alternative visions of this decade and see how they perhaps measure up to our pandemic uh, shithole of a decade so far. <laughs> so yeah, might as well just get right into it. Uh, Andy, why don't you tell us what you brought to the table? You know, there, there, there for me is just a, a, a plethora of... You know, this this really bad sort of knockoff Mad Max shit from, you know, starting in the late 70s through the 80s and into the early 90s where, you know, you had a lot of that kind of 30 years from now. Oh, the world's falling apart. And there, there's a lot of garbage. So I, I kind of climbed up onto the trash heap and tried to find one that that I hadn't seen that sounded a little bit more interesting than the the typical run of that you know sort of road warrior knockoff uh, crap, and I came across another great sort of vulgar auteur, Sirio H. Santiago's film from 1988, The Sisterhood. The Sisterhood is like a lot of the, the films I've just described, set in a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, you sort of pick up through the exposition that there's been a nuclear war. I think there's a prologue that kind of sets the stage a little bit. Um, that there's been a nuclear war and the, the world is devastated. And of course, now we're all just bands of of animalistic, uh, you know, humans wandering the wasteland, scavenging what we can find. But this one doesn't put all of its its faith in a sort of loner uh, dude like like Max Rakotansky uh, in the Mad Max films. This one 
sees perhaps the the savior or or the way out of all this barbarism as a group of women, a group of female warriors known as the Sisterhood. And the film sort of just revolves around this 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 group of men, this sort of like barbarous group of men who are led by a guy named Mikal or Michael or, or whatever. The, the audio is so bad in this movie, I heard his name like five different ways, but, but Mikal, I'll call him, uh, <laughs> seems to have a particular grudge against the sisters, the sisterhood. And uh, we don't really understand why, other than the fact that he just seems to be a barbarous man. And so he attacks a group of women and they, they fight him off when we get our first glimpse of what makes these sisters so special. They all seem to be endowed with some sort of superpower, some sort of secret, you know, superpower. Uh, one of them very early on in sort of this opening ambush sequence has these kind of like laser eyes and, and is able to like trigger a, an avalanche of rocks. Uh, another one uh, we discover has the power to heal, has a sort of like magic healing power. And so the film kind of sets up this dichotomy between like the, the sort of cruel, barbarous men and these very kind of far out spacey sisters who have special powers. And you know, they have another special power, which is to have really excessive 80s hairstyle and perfect <laughs> makeup in the apocalypse, which yes. is pretty impressive. Yes. Uh, the men are all pretty grimy, I'm sure you can imagine, wearing a lot of like football pads, repurposes, you know, wasteland armor. But Yeah, with little fur draped over it. Yeah, the sisterhood are, are looking quite nice in the in the midst of all this like nuclear holocaust and then you know the sisters come across uh, a woman who is is not a member of the sisterhood but has just had her whole village devastated by an attack from Mikal and his band of of marauders and the sisters take this girl under their wing they offer her sanctuary with the sisterhood and then it sets off what is going to be the rest of the film, which is sort of an odyssey across the wasteland of the sisterhood trying to find, I think, their reverend mother. The The plot is sort of secondary in a film like this. <laughs> and uh, Mikal and his group, hot on their tail, trying to capture them, destroy them, and it, it creates this sort of running chase across the wasteland. And, you know, I would say on a certain level, if you've seen one of these kind of <laughs> Mad Max knockoff films. You've seen them all. But this one, as I think we will pick apart more, it has a couple charms that I think kind of set it apart. So that's The Sisterhood. All right. Ryan, what about you? So as I was combing through films that were set in the 2020s, it was funny seeing how it's something that's become more of a contemporary fascination. There were less films pre-2000 that engaged directly with the 2020s. There were some some really notable ones, but there was only a handful. But as I was combing through, I came across a made-for-TV film from 1998 by someone who has one of my favorite filmographies, both as a cinematographer and a director, and that is Ernest Dickerson. And this film is Future Sport. Ernest Dickerson is, is known primarily for, for Juice, the film he directed, but he's also been a cinematographer for Spike Lee, shooting some of his most accomplished films, but also 
Ernest has uh, a very expansive directorial career with Juice, but also with lots of genre films. He's done thrillers such as Surviving the Game. He's done horror films such as Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, and Bones. Um, he's worked in comedy with Adam Sandler, and he's also has a very seasoned television career. Bosh. Bosh. The Wire. God, he's directed episodes of fucking Every everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Dexter as well. <laughs> yeah, and Dexter as well. And yeah, he is just like a warm, lovely, charming man. We, we had a chance to uh, see him speak one year at, at Cinepocalypse in Chicago. Um, and that was like a treasured sort of, you know, honorary moment for, for us getting to see him. But so Future Sport from, from 1998, I would say, is not necessarily top tier Ernest Dickerson. However, some of his, some of his warmth and um, his ability to move in and out of different genres is um, that strength uh, can be felt throughout this film. And so th this film uh, is set in the year 2025. And we are following Trey Ramsey, played by Dean Kane, who is uh, most known for his work in Lois and Clark, the Superman TV show, but also known in other circles as sort of like a right-wing commentator. Uh, some might say Superman, right-wing commentator, you know, one and the same. <laughs> so Trey Ramsey is a star athlete in this new sport called Future Sport. Future Sport <laughs> is sort of like uh, a combination of rollerball, where they're all kind of geared out in like Nickelodeon game show type armor as they kind of roll around on this court that looks like a skate park as they ride around on both hoverboards and rollerblades and they're trying to toss these metal balls into like a sort of metal funnel at the other end of the court. And um, Sports guy. Yeah, yeah. sports guy. <laughs> It's a hoop, you know. I think they say hoop or goal. Do they say? I guess it's a. I don't. I wouldn't call it goal, a hoop. hoop. You know, any of the normal things people it, yeah, sure, use. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm thinking Baskets, on a more, much, yeah, more, much more like tactile level of the, the, the way the future sport functions. Um, and sort of the other quirk of the game is it's, it's a very fast-paced, high-octane game because the ball carries with it an electrical charge, and if you're holding onto it for more than five seconds, you're riding the lightning, and you've got to either pass it off or get that thing in the goal and one of the things that cripples Trey Ramsey as a player is he doesn't really believe in teamwork he, he thinks of himself as this he glorifies his own image and he thinks of himself as just a popular man who can accomplish anything and classic clubhouse cancer yeah exactly and so this leads to uh, at the beginning of the film in New Orleans when it's a big tournament the game is a disaster and they lose but sort of surrounding all of this fanfare with Trey Ramsey as he's working through his celebrity status Hawaii is trying to break free from the North American alliance and form its own independent nation. And there is a group of terrorists, the Hawaiian Liberation Organization, who are committing terrorist acts around New Orleans and the world. And it's this threat that sort of hangs over the film. So Trey Ramsey decides to capitalize on the global turmoil and also raise his popularity index and regain his celebrity status in a game of future sport. So casting aside bullets, casting aside warfare, and instead we're gonna settle it all on the court. It is very much a TV film from the late 90s. It is full of really comedic sort of CG cityscapes. It has like a lot of goofy tech, you know, people with lenses on their eyes for cameras, all sorts of silly stuff. Wesley Snipes is in it doing a 
really bizarre fake patois as he is uh, sort of a community leader in what's known as the down zone and he's also the creator of future sport he was on board as an executive producer and it really does sort of feel like uh, a favor for his buddy Ernest Ernest doesn't have a lot of his regular collaborators on the film uh, I was taking a look at surviving the game uh, which came out a few years before and in that he was working with Sam Pollard as an editor he's working with Ruth Carter for costume design and he had sort of created a collective of all these artists working together as they made their films and it didn't seem like he was graced with that talent around him as he was working on future sport but yes it's 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 a who knows maybe that will be where we are four years from now i guess is how i'll cap this off we may be using sports to settle some of these global disputes because it, it really does seem like nothing matters anymore and our our reality is a farce so in that sense maybe future sport is a predictive text and and does capture something of the world we live in now <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> Yeah, so start by uh, comparing them uh, by saying very simply, uh, both of these films are on to be. <laughs> so if you're listening to this uh, and want to check these out, uh, head on over to the trash pile that we all love and watch these movies. I was thinking in general, though, whenever a film is projecting itself uh, into the future, right, it's going to carry with it uh, the stuff of the era it's from, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I did find it interesting that these films were released exactly 10 years apart, one in the final year of Ronald Reagan's presidency and the other in the final year of Bill Clinton's presidency. And I think both of the films are very much projecting the sort of anxieties of these eras uh, into the future and the worldviews as well, you know? So that was a, an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, these films take two totally opposing routes to the future as well, right? Because mm -hmm. we should say, obviously, future sport is your classic, like, imagine the future, but it just, you know, obviously it's looks like PlayStation because it's <laughs> yeah. 1998. And then in the sisterhood, it's like, imagine the future, but it's the past, right? Because there's been a nuclear apocalypse, it's sort of reverted back to a kind of like sword and sorcery kind of feel. However, mm -hmm. that's mixed with cars and machine guns. So there's that weird anachronistic quality to it. But I think one film is looking to the future and finding the, the far past, and the other film is uh, looking, you know, to I guess to the future, which is kind of similar to our present, but with hoverboard sports and some other things going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, on that subject, like since you bring that up, like, I mean, it, yes, it's it's very apparent that in the sisterhood, they see the 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 death throes of the Cold War erupting into a, a hot war where where for one reason or another, we drop the big one and uh, and it, it wrecks everything. Yeah. And it's still like a Cold War film where the sense of fatalism is is apparent. But, you know, Future Sport's an end of history film, right? <laughs> yes. It's it's 1998. The Cold War is long over. So it has a different kind of outlook on, well, shit, now what? You know, where do we go from here? I guess hoverboards and, yeah. you know, what's going to be the next big threat? Where is it going to come from? Like, when we don't have 
the the commies, what are we going to have? Uh, the Hawaiians, I guess, is yeah. what they come up with. Yeah. 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 And the greater yeah. Asian Pacific area. Yeah, but mm. also, right, in Future Sport, uh, a, a much more internal rot that the film is also at times implicitly playing with and you know there's a little bit of a a sort of like explicit view of that kind of thing that i think resonates much more because of where we actually wound up today you know in it's funny in in future sports some of the things that in 1998 would have perhaps seemed ridiculous now aren't that far off from what we had you know i think that's part of you know why you pick this topic is for us to sort of look at films like this and and again say what did they get right what did they get wrong Mm -hmm. in in future sport there's actually quite a few things that aren't that far off like particularly you know you brought up this idea of of the the popularity index right and it's it's brought to our attention like very early on because trey has this sort of uh, hotsy totsy celebrity girlfriend Lorelai, and after that uh, disastrous championship game you you so eloquently described, Ryan, in your opening, <laughs> she dumps him, and the reason she dumps him is because of the popularity index, mm-hmm. and she's specifically like citing numbers, you know, like you know what my popularity index is, and do you know what happened to yours after you fucking blew it in the championship game i can't be with you because you're gonna destroy my popularity index and they they use numbers and of course the first thing i was thinking of is social media today and the way the popularity index is like followers for certain people Mm -hmm. right and people are so concerned about followers and likes on posts and stuff like that and people like charting that and keeping track of that as i said this kind of like internal rot and this this thing that again in 98 might have seemed a little bit like wow wouldn't it be crazy if we had a popularity index where you could actually chart like how the public sees you and it's like well we fucking do have that don't we and especially having these figures these influencers using global turmoil to enhance and embellish their popularity index the way that all these people will engage with the pandemic or politics now in order to craft an image of themselves you know as a unifier or as someone who is thoughtful and thinking about all of these things it's very not far off it's brought up in the very beginning before the championship game we're introduced to trey dean kane you know he's having sex with his girlfriend in their (laughs) house that looks like a, a church and He's like, oh, I got to go do this media interview. It'll be worth at least 15 points, by the way. He cites the popularity index. And then he says, talk about things they got right, because Lorelai is sort of like, oh, don't go, you know, and just hang out with me. And he says, uh, it's been 10 years since that first piece she did on Future Sport, and they want to do a retrospective. Nostalgia sells, you know. That's what he says, mm. right? So we're mm-hmm. already in. You know, it's 1998. Obviously, people then are aware of the sort of postmodern regurgitation turn of our media. And God, it's just obviously gotten worse, you know? So 100% bullseye on uh, the future's obsession with nostalgia, which was also the present's obsession with nostalgia. Yeah, absolutely. And then just like it also gets a couple of pieces of tech correct, too. I mean, 
Trey has a smart home. He has a yes. home that he can just speak to and have things accomplished. There are people that have what look like Apple watches. Yeah, they FaceTime like with their Apple watches uh, in this film. Yeah, it's always funny seeing alternate visions of like video conferencing or facetiming in general and how the if the connection's bad it turns into like analog static as opposed to just the image freezing and like the audio cutting out and it's funny how it it couldn't imagine like this you know obviously like a digital way of communication where the the buffering would look very different than it was if you had like a a, a, an analog monitor kind of glitching out yeah they still like treat it like it's fucking broadcast or whatever you know? yeah exactly <laughs> do you think that do you think that the guys that had the lens camera on their on their face do you think they could take that off or do you think like by taking that profession they were bound to being like a camera head for the rest of their lives personally i chose to interpret it as the film taking place in the world of Bertrand Tavernier's Death Watch, <laughs> where Harvey oh. Keitel gets the camera installed mm. as his eye. Yeah, I was trying to wonder about this guy. I was like, is that a cyborg? Because the guy was like very, like he he wasn't like emoting in any way and, and was very stiff yeah. and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I wondered about that as well. I, I think there were just so many like little fucking threads that got planted by somebody at some point either in the script or in the production design that never really got pulled, never really got sort of like tugged on, you know? Like I also like the idea that instead of like writing an autograph on something, you just, the um, sports cards, like baseball cards, he just like would put his thumb on a little scanner that then acknowledged that like it was verified that he had touched it as if like the idea of a signature is not that you can see text and like the actual touch of another human being like writing on whatever object you have, but it's just more verification that this human being with this popularity index like touched what i have and i can verify it with my device there is a lot of surveillance shots and and sort of tv shots and and in a sense too because there is uh, a robot spider that spies uh, on people at a at a certain point it's kind of like a drone essentially that thing it's a little more lethal well, I guess drones are lethal too, but yeah, uh, yeah you know, there there is some stuff we have now that they're deploying in a, in a future sense here. Not that it's too hard to envision some of this stuff. But. Yes, and well, you know, another thing that you know you could argue it was it it was kind of ahead of the game on too. Uh, no pun intended. Was the the sort of reason for future sports ascendancy as you know the world's sort of sport right um which is that it is sort of briefly explained to us yes that uh trey was not always a future sporter but at one time was a basketball player with the nba rookie of the year rookie of the year (laughs) and apparently the nba uh completely collapsed in 2015 over a point fixing scandal right and so they just basically are like after that you know more or less it's implied everyone lost faith in the sport or people got arrested you know and and that just killed the nba once people lost faith in it because of the point fixing scandal and it might also have been implied that that trey had something to do with it as well right that, that he was a, a party to those kinds of scandals future sport viewers didn't have to wait until 2015 to get a massive <laughs> nba scandal 
Kendall. I mean, that was the mid 2000s when the the Tim Donahue story broke and those guys went to jail. I mean, that happened, you know, but of course, Friedkin predicted it in blue chips as well, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so so the NBA falls apart and then it's it's sort of like there's this this cultural malaise because now where do we we put all of our our attention and our 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 desire for some sort of vicarious escape through through winning and losing and that sort of thing and it is then also sort of in in the exposition given to us that that Wesley Snipes character OBK Fix an, an interesting name considering too that they were talking about you know point fixing scandals in the NBA but anyway yeah. OBK Fix builds this sport in the the ghettos of post-industrial kind of depressed uh, city uh, of America, cities of America. And you see like footage of him sort of at like skate parks, kind of like working it out and, and you know, as this now like postmodern Naismith trying to come up with, with future sport. And there's actually some kind of cool like lo-fi video footage in this like TV documentary that's that's the exposition, you know, giving us the 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 rules of of everything and the rules of future sport and we see some like mm-hmm. cool footage of like skate park and and Wesley in the middle of it all kind of like directing people and explaining like how the game's going to work so so he builds it as as just sort of a thing right as a sort of escape for people uh in the inner cities to channel their their energies and their efforts but then the sport gets picked up and commercialized and so there's this this tension there with him as the creator of the sport and how it's become so commodified and it's become so wrapped up in things like popularity indexes and and people like Trey right these these sort of TV hotshots so he sort of looks at the game as like there's a pure way to play it there's a right way to play it and the way that they're playing it on the TV it's all bullshit to him. You know, he doesn't think that that's what the sport's about. It shouldn't be about that to him. Well, because it's also about that him using future sport to solve gang disputes. So he's essentially right. like an interrupter. And he he creates this sport and then the sport becomes a useful social tool to okay, yeah, like two gangs want to want to war over a park. Well, instead of shooting each other, settle it on the court, future sport, you know? So it is in that spirit that, like, you know, Dean Kane, Trey, the hollow man, uh, is trying to sort of, like, yeah, like, regain some sense of moral character by taking his popularity and the popularity of future sport and and then, yes, applying it uh, to a global conflict, uh, which, you know, to me also recalls uh, Peter Watkins is the gladiators, sure. right? I uh, that as well. Where, you know, you got to settle, <laughs> settle it on TV, the war of nations, you know, turn it into a TV show, folks. The peace games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wish there was a full game in the down zone um i think this film was missing definitely needed at least one more full future sport event um i think it could have done with two more to be honest um, <laughs> i thought they were going down that path when he you know yeah. when he goes down you know to to the down zone 
uh, I was like, all right, this is it, right? He, he should play with the local kids and, like, get his groove back. Yeah. But Refine yeah. the Instead, the, the, you know, the Hawaiian Liberation Organization tries to blow him up, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Pretty quickly, the, the Hawaiians really take over uh, this movie. <laughs> you know? yeah. those, those, those fucking villainous Hawaiians just asserting themselves. Because you're right. I mean, like... It's bookended basically by two games. Uh, the, the film mm-hmm. opens where we we get to see like this this championship game played, and and we get a good sense of how the game works. And of course, it's also establishing certain certain hooks that are gonna come back when we can get back on the the future sport court later. But it is like an in, an interminable like time before. <laughs> We get back to the future sport yeah. arena. Yeah. Like the movie then becomes like a a sort of like weird sci-fi geopolitical thriller. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And yeah. a weird romance as well. Anytime the film was slipping into its romantic mode, I was just so <laughs> desperate to get back out on the court and to to get another like jolt of electricity from the future sport ball. I mean, I have to imagine on a certain level that these are two films that are very obviously limited by their budgets uh, yes. in terms of the kind of spectacle they're able to to unleash. And especially like sci-fi, you know, big action kind of spectacle. And establishing a sport is a cost prohibitive sport to to try to create in a film, you know, like hoverboards. Like, man, that's yeah. fucking... It's it's tough to pull that off, you know. You need right. a really good special effects team and all this stuff. And so I think on a certain level, there might have been even just a very practical kind of like, all right, we we've only got enough for like two of these for our special effects budget. Yeah, you it know? felt to me like MVP two, most vertical primate, uh, oh, in yeah. the sense that they're hiding the sport, you know, (laughs) (laughs) for budgetary and practical reasons, because even the intro to it in the championship game, it's very fast cut in the climactic game. You do see a lot more and there's some longer shots and you get to spend a little more time with the sport, but they're in their close shots. You know, they're not letting you see this full Mm. game be played because this full game cannot be played. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever there's a wide shot of them, like getting air on the hoverboard or going for a shot, they are blurred beyond belief to the point where I thought like something was wrong with the copy I was looking at. I'm so mad that you beat me to the MVP two punch because when we were watching it, one of the first things Molly said was, "You know who'd be good at future sport? Jack. Jack would yeah. be a good future sport player." I thought the exact same thing. You know, right? I was going to bring it up as well. I mean, I guess we're here. We might as well just now hash it out. But yeah, where the hell is Jack? Jack would have owned out. We've man. seen what he can do in a bowl. You know. Oh. Oh, absolutely. On a skateboard? Yeah. Put him on a hoverboard now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he'd be so good. And you'd know that he'd be able to get that ball into the goal, like, effortlessly. Yes. You know, maybe that'll be the first film produced by The Gauntlet, is when we make MVP4 Future Sport, and it becomes like a <laughs> sort of hybrid collection of everything we've discussed on the show. Yeah, the great-grandson of Jack, you know, is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> going to usher in world peace through through future sport. I could see Dean Kane getting really upset at the introduction of a chimpanzee into into the mix at on his future sport team. Oh yeah. But also think about what Jack's popularity index would be. I mean, that would be <laughs> through the fucking roof. It would be insane. Yeah. Just shut down the the internet or whatever, the broadcast internet that they're all <laughs> yeah. using. Speaking yeah. of, you know, I think my favorite popularity index uh, reference in the film was when uh, someone says, yeah, the UN 
they're not going to do anything. They don't even they don't even have a PI rating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is another thing they got right. Yeah, totally. You know? yeah. UN fucking sucks. <laughs> so fucking funny, man. Well, okay, I want to break down on some of this like geopolitical stuff because it's it's funny to me. Yeah, buckle but also, up, folks. Yeah, buckle up because it's like <laughs> yeah. again, this is a late '90s movie. This was on ABC. This is this was a, on ABC. This is a Disney film. Yes, Disney ABC '98. That's after the merger. There's so. fucking nudity in it. Yeah, there's tits in it. But so yeah, the the copy we saw on Tubi is the the unsafe censored copy of uh, future sport with the boobs yeah because because it, it came up and it was like rated r when i even saw the the rating and i was like damn rated r i was like what channel was this shit on you know and yeah. and there are a couple like spicy moments but that being aside sorry didn't anyway, mean to derail no, the, get into good. the real spicy stuff the geopolitical conflict so right i mean this film was on abc so uh it's the late 90s and it's got the sort of you know the the generic sort of neoliberal hallmarks and we'll talk about that especially with his uh you know solution to the global crisis so in general right the film does have a very like global feel to it right it's got a, a very multiracial and multinational cast and in fact the game of future sport is a global sport because in the championship mm -hmm. it's the LA Rush versus the Berlin Griffins and fun fact about the Berlin Griffins of course is their best player and Trey's arch nemesis is Blake Becker, who went to Notre Dame and was a future sports star. And that's a funny detail that I think says a lot about Blake's character, this sort of Notre Dame guy. Yeah, he's real prissy. Uh, <laughs> he also is so hilarious to me because they're like, ah, oh, the German Blake Becker or whatever. And then like... He he is doing like not even a shred of a German accent. So I guess I was confused. I'm like, is he American but playing with the German team? I guess that makes sense. But but then he like has a moment where he's like, well, you know, we have a saying in Germany. And then he does like the worst fucking German I've ever heard. It's like, what is he Shameful. saying? He's like, alles glisten ich nicht so gold or whatever. It's <laughs> yeah. so fucking bad. And I was like what the hell is this? Like, but I guess that might make sense then if he was just some sort of like Indiana boy with German ancestry who then, you know, went off to, yeah. to, to Germany to play with the, the German team or something like that. Cause he does not read in any way, shape or form as an actual German. No, no. <laughs> and so we've got that all going on this global game, this global, you know, future. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, there is a, a, a simmering war, separatist war of independence going on in Hawaii. And, and in the absence, of course, of the Soviet Union, we now have the, the Pan-Pacific Commonwealth as this big other that is, in the context of the film, like, nefarious yeah. for no discernible reason that is discussed. I mean, there are some things that muddy the waters later on, but it, it's a very confusing situation to look at this film and go like, they just dismiss the cause of the, the Hawaiian Liberation Organization on not ideological grounds that are just like, oh yeah, they're just like idiots. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. what is going on in this movie and these people's like attitudes towards it? And I mean, it makes sense in a certain regard because Trey, extremely shallow, hollow man, you know, celebrity sports guy. He doesn't know or care about politics at all. Yeah. But again, it's it is this very bizarre, like, yeah, inversion of the coal of 
the Cold War where it's like, yes, and now the inevitable conflict with Asia and that's what's going on or whatever. Yeah. It's beyond obviously perhaps the the scope of of what this film was actually trying to accomplish. But yes, it doesn't really make much sense at all the the parties of the pan pacific commonwealth and like you mm-hmm. know their their truck with the north american alliance it, it just sort of seems to exist for the sake of creating like you said a sort of like big other and a big conflict because you know as ryan sort of pointed out you know or asked before before we started recording is like is like australia in charge of the pan pacific commonwealth (laughs) because it seems that way it does seem that way uh when they finally have this big like pan pacific commonwealth like meeting and there's just like an australian guy that's like i'm in charge here and it's like (laughs) why did australia suddenly (laughs) decide like fuck the u.s and 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 all that stuff uh but yeah it's not very clear and also conspicuously absent from any real mention in the pan-pacific commonwealth is china yep. who you yeah, would assume definitely. would be you know leading the it wouldn't be australia leading the fucking pan-pacific commonwealth it'd be china it did really seem like this this thread of the film was the most concrete evidence that Ernest didn't really get a chance to like inject any of what he might have wanted to do in it and that it was primarily like a workman production just like something he was hired to produce and get done because you know some of his films very explicitly tackle certain social issues but otherwise a lot of them just sort of sneakily get that stuff in there he has like a very multicultural and progressive worldview that just like comes naturally through a lot of his genre work so i was really surprised when the film started and we were presented with these terrorists who were planning all these bombings and they were like at arms that there really was no gray area they were simply just this villainous organization that we were supposed to sort of scoff at and like think of as nothing but heinous um but my first impression while watching was like oh yeah sure of course hawaii wants to be liberated like that's interesting that sounds great like if if that's what the the agenda is let's like let's explore that and then Ernest never really gets a chance to <laughs> to dive into that at all it seems like uh, he was stuck in yeah. his in the smart home of Dean Kane so as he was making shitty sushi for Vanessa Williams yeah it's it's hard not to like i don't know on a certain level for me it was just like oh my god like unintentionally obviously kind of like finding humor in some of the the absurdity of of that situation i mean we had the opening like terrorist attack of the the hawaiian liberation organization and at at a certain point they like they they announce like that they're looking for trey it seems and and one of them declares You've been found guilty of crimes against the Hawaiian people, you know, and that's what's supposed to be like this terrifying death sentence that was just handed down, you know, like what the fuck could a crime against the Hawaiian people be like, I suppose the, the, the crime is our crime, the crime of the United States of of taking Hawaii and holding yeah, on. Yeah, I it think for that's so what long, it was implying. But... The colonization of Hawaii. And right, like, but I yeah, still by I extension still... you're a part of a North American alliance that like holds on to this colony. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I'm I'm doing we're we're doing the work there for him on that, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's sort of I mean there's a there is an interesting point too where, you know, Vanessa Williams is like, You're you're quarter Hawaiian. And then he's just like, I have nothing to do with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. He's like, I go there once a year for a future sport game, all right? I got nothing to do with Hawaii. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's like like the, the, the leader of the Hawaiian Liber Organiza- Liberation Organization. Scythe, yeah. Scythe, you know, he's also this this just like, I, I think he's just like a white dude, yeah. but he's got like Maori facial tats like that are mm. really very, uh, very, pre- <laughs> you know, very, pre- his whole face is like tatted up in like Maori ink. And yeah, again, you know, he doesn't really seem to explain anything other than the fact that I guess they just want, they want to be on their own. <laughs> they want to, they want to secede from the United States. Yeah, there was definitely a moment where I thought we were going to get a glimpse into their political worldview and what their goals were and what they were attempting to accomplish when we like, we do get a scene at their headquarters. But instead of getting any conversation that relates to what they're hoping to achieve um, with their organization, we just get footage of like big beefy dudes just like screaming as they're pumping iron and then like other men and like tapping their palms in like barrels of hot coals just so they could like feel the rush and kind of like build up their pain tolerance. Yeah. Um, that's all we get of them. I disagree, Ryan. Uh, there is actually a nuanced moment in that sequence. Yes, it's mostly guys training, but when the when Scythe talks to the second in command, the woman, there's a an, an admission that essentially their cause has been co-opted in this kind of imperialist way by the Pan-Pacific Commonwealth because they want liberation for Hawaii. And and the second-in-command says, we don't want to go to war. We just wanted to threaten them into giving into our demands. And then it's the Scythe who's like all on board with selling out to the Australians or whatever. Uh, So there is a slight implication that like, yeah, their causes like independence for Hawaii is what it is, but they're also, yes, the big shadowy pan Pacific Commonwealth is coming in to use them to, uh, you know, spark a conflict. And that's why I couldn't tell if Scythe was, it was like purposeful that he was a white man that was leading this organization as if he was someone who was playing on, on multiple playing fields and sort of looking out for the interests of, you know, other countries in the pan Pacific Commonwealth. It was just, that's the thing. It was so hard to tell (laughs) when, when things were like actively purposeful and like arranged in a way for us to, uh, to read. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is some like odd, weird, maybe even still like late nineties kind of interesting cultural kind of appropriation stuff that's going on there. Right. So we got like the white dude with the Maori tats. And then of course, as we've mentioned, like Trey, who, who is, you know, ashamed of his, of his quarter Hawaiian ancestry. In spite of that, uh, his, his nickname is Pharaoh and, and he adorns himself in like, you know, ancient Egyptian uh, imagery. He's got like a necklace that's, you know, like the eye of Anubis or something like that, you know? And like, there's constantly like sort of making comments, like that's his thing. Like he's, he's the Pharaoh, you know? And and I was like, why? Is it, is it cause his last name is (laughs) Ramsey and it's like, Ramses, but but even that again, I feel like I'm doing the work for him there. You know? Yeah, very like, very perplexing. Absolutely. Yeah. So ultimately, Dean Kane Trey wants to use future sport to avoid world war, and this is where the the neo lib solution comes in, right? Because he's proposing this, you know, 
meritocracy. Like, we'll set up a fair fight and may the best man win, you know? This sort of, like, liberal fantasy of what mm -hmm. uh, the world should be like yeah. in uh, using future sport uh, this way. But he, of course, learns very quickly that in war there are no rules, right? Because ultimately, he wants to play a good, clean game, and whoever wins gets Hawaii, I guess? And the other side is not playing fair. The Australians particularly. Yeah, they bring in, uh, what's his name? Uh, Hatchet Jack. Well, yes, they... <laughs> They bring in Hatchet Jack, but there's Neville Hotchkins, yeah. the government liaison officer to provide, quote-unquote, internal security to uh, the Pan-Pacific Future Sport team. And we should also say the Future Sport team put together by the Pan-Pacific Commonwealth also includes some of Trey's teammates because they come from other countries like Singapore. So Jet, one of their teammates, uh, is sort of, it's kind of implied she's forced to play uh, on the other team kind of against her will. Uh, and there's a jab at Pan-Pacific unity at one point in a very uh, biting way. Oh, yeah. And it also, on the flip side, places uh, Trey with his... His former rival, yes. Becker, is now uh, drafted into the North American alliance as a sort of German uh, representative, which, again, don't don't. If you dig as deep as we're digging right now, it's all it's a house of cards. You know, it's all it's all yeah. that. It's called the North American alliance. But but Germany's a part of the North American alliance. And I, I maybe sort of, just he is. Yeah, I guess maybe, maybe he he's is an American citizen who plays future sport in Germany. Yeah, I guess. Sure. Yeah, he's. he's but I, I, I was like, well, why isn't it the North Atlantic Alliance? Now that would make a lot more sense, right? But yeah, there was definitely some blank spaces in terms of the way the the geopolitical map was arranged for this film because it, Russia was included in the the Pan Pacific Alliance because the, their whole like big headquarters meeting was like on the Sino Russian border because it was like a arctic like wasteland of sorts <laughs> yeah, yeah it felt like it actually felt like um the lair of a james bond villain oh, <laughs> yeah, now you're pressing. come on <laughs> it did oh, though <laughs> fair enough low-hanging fruit uh, well, you know, if, if we're going to blame anyone for uh, the world-building inconsistencies, we can put that on uh, Robert Wolf, who was uh, best known for his work on Deep Space Nine and Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as co-writer Steve DeJarnat, who, of course, famously directed Miracle Mile, uh, a classic 80s film uh, that features nuclear apocalypse. But yeah, this, this, this thing is obviously a mess, and because it's an ABC TV movie, they're not gonna and don't portray any of the political conflict in, in any nuanced or even interesting way other than some, like, generic utilitarianism arguments from Scythe. Like, <laughs> yeah, we kill one guy. Like, if we avoid war, that's good, you know? That's as deep as this movie gets. But I should say, the guy that the the HLO, or the Helos, as they're called in the film, the, the guy they do kill is the coach of the future sport team that Dean Cain is on. And, and he is played 
by Bill Smitrovich from Crime Story and Miami Vice. So he's in here, a nice comforting presence for me. I was really, you know, I did a little digging on the cast and I... Uh, found some just very interesting stuff. I don't know if you guys did either. But Jet is played by Valerie Chow, who is the stewardess in Chungking Express. Oh. And check this out. There's a guy on their team named Willard. And he has like a, there's a brief gag where he's mentioned and cut to. And otherwise, he's kind of hovering in the background. And he's also the guy who quits the team after Coach uh, gets murdered. They're like, where's Willard? He's like, he left. You know, anyone else want to leave? Willard is played by Brad Laurie, who played Michael Myers in Halloween Resurrection. Gauntlet callback. Oh, my goodness. Unmasked. Unmasked, dude. That's why I didn't recognize him. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I, I feel like I noticed something in the way he walked. <laughs> Stop. <it. laughs> well, so there's another thread that we should probably bring up, and that's the fact that Wesley Snipes, you know, Mr. Fix, he does get involved then with the Hawaiian Liberation Organization to sort of help fix the game in their favor. Yeah, the fix is in. The fix is in to to create a fix. But his his end goal there is because he's been promised like millions of dollars that he can then bring into the community and and present to the down zone. I had to do some work there because uh, Fix says that the amount he's going to receive is 1000k. Yeah, <laughs> that really threw me as well, dude. Seriously, I sat there for like fucking two minutes, and I was like, 100 k, okay, that so hundred k, so a hundred thousand, ten hundred k." I was like, oh, so a million? Is that <laughs> doing the math? Right, but know? I also could have sworn that there was an earlier moment where the $5 million was what was like on the table for the down zone. And then I also heard Scythe at a certain point say 10 million euros. So, mm. you know, lots of, maybe everybody's working against each other. Everybody's, you know, got their own little amount that they're like, you know, saying, <laughs> yeah. here's what you're going to get, you know? And, and yeah, Fix is, is, is presumably going to do it all for 1000k exactly but yeah he's he's really put off by you know trey's popularity index um sort of scam that he's pulling by turning his sport into an actual solution to a world war and then he's also clearly really upset about the commercialization of future sport and how it doesn't align with the initial goals and sort of like the the values that um future sports stood for in the down zone so he does he does turn on them however he does eventually come around they went too far yeah yeah they went too far and i think it's when they killed the coach and That's kidnapped his... uh vanessa williams right as right. well he comes to the rescue and kind of turns uh or reveals himself in that moment to trey as having been working with the helos and it's also too right because you know he doesn't want all the people in the down zone to get drafted into the war because these are the people who don't have the pi you know they don't have the clout or the money to avoid being sent to the front lines so he is yeah i mean he's obviously like just the cool guy trying to look out for his community but yeah he's playing it both ways ultimately though yeah he comes around and even has yes a a dramatic appearance, his first professional appearance in the game he invented. Yes, as the uh, the Pan Pacific 
Commonwealth or the comms, as they're known, the com, uh, as they're playing pretty damn rough and tough in that in that game. Yeah, street rules, as is screamed many, many times as they're like destroying each other and being like, it's street rules. Yes. Yeah, and we do get a nice money <laughs> shot where someone gets like whacked in the face and he spits a bunch of blood all over the lens. Yeah, that oh, was pretty yeah. nice. Yeah, that, that was awesome. I also thought it was really funny how that game was introduced by the newscaster saying, no matter your politics, this is sure to be like one of the great sports events in history no but that's that's what it's all about ryan yes like that's the message of the movie you know that's the message of disney and abc like no matter your politics just be entertained you fucking piggies you know don't think about it yeah yeah that's what was like blowing my mind and i guess when a lot of these threads in the film really clicked for me because i had all these like lingering questions as i was watching trying to piece together this conflict and what the specific motivations were and sort of the ethics behind all the different perspectives uh involved in this and once he were presented with a game that is standing in place of a world war and the newscaster says you know what no no matter your politics you're gonna like this game it's gonna be a banger (laughs) yeah dude i wrote down the line where he says uh hard to believe this game will actually replace war (laughs) (laughs) it's like yeah no shit and at the same time not hard to believe that this game is going to replace war. No. Uh, no one really seems to be aware of uh, the the actual stakes involved here. You know, the crowd is pretty amped up for the game. Oh, the crowd loves it. Uh, and they don't really seem to have a lot of political stakes here. I was thinking with, like, MVP2 that that was, like, one of the most, like, riled up crowds I had ever seen in a film, the way they were, like, you know, tossing the bananas around and cheering Jack on, and they were just, like, fever at like every you know sort of goal he made and all his incredible plays but this film seemed like it it ramped it up to a 10 it looked like those people were going to rip each other's shirts off they were so fucking thrilled at everything that was happening on the court i mean people were just like screaming with glee and like looking up to the heavens anytime anything happened in future sport well that's because it means they're all not going to get drafted now and go and (laughs) die yeah it was the sweet release i mean actually you know to me the most insightful part of the film is after Vanessa Williams is kidnapped, the, Dean Kane is in the locker room and he's like, she's been kidnapped. I got to go rescue her. And he's like, uh, going to, you know, he's telling, telling it to all these people. And someone goes, we should call the blue shirts referring to the police. And then Dean Kane says, no way. Chief Croner and his stormtroopers, they'll kill Alex in the crossfire, which is incredible <laughs> because they're all fighting so hard, like for the the like status quo and for the neoliberal order of the future. And then he just admits, like, don't call the police. They're fascists. They'll kill everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like he's not connecting any of these dots. You no. know, it's like, well, you ever wondered why Hawaii wanted their independence? Like, exactly. You know, and it's funny you bring up that moment because I was thinking about that same scene for me and what was extremely telling in there about uh, humanity, which is when he's explaining that his girlfriend's been kidnapped, you know, and boy, we, we got to do something about it. One of his teammates says, not my girlfriend. And he's like, I ain't going. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this guy's here to play a game that's going to solve like a, a war. And now you're telling me I got to go rescue your girlfriend too, man. I got a lot on my fucking plate yeah, right now. It's like now. five hours till game time. And <laughs> yeah. they have to go on like a commando raid. <laughs> 
<laughs> to yeah. Nag Attack headquarters. <laughs> yeah, right? That guy's like, I'm here to play the fucking game, all right? I'm the winger. That's what I've been signed up to do. All right, it's already more than I've ever signed up for here. It is funny, again, bringing up MVP, like, that it does have a similar structure like MVP, because if you recall in that... There's like the sort of like double climaxes. Yes, and right. this movie also has like a double climax because, yes, Dean Kane Trey, you know, he does guilt all of his teammates now into like going and taking part in this rescue op. And uh, they go and have to face like a heavily armed, highly trained bunch of, uh, you know, helos armed to the teeth with seemingly nothing but their hoverboards they bring with them for this kind of like little rascal style mission. <laughs> like, go, like, oh, yeah. we can do it guys we're plucky and and so yes there's this huge action sequence as we've described where yes you know fix comes back and 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 is sort of the one of them even points out the cavalry come to the rescue to like help in them those out. old flat screen movies the implication being that all movies in 2025 are no longer two-dimensional yeah <laughs> yes yeah yeah was it 3d or was it like virtual reality i wasn't sure exactly what that was implying but i guess not totally off of the beat no more yeah. flat screen so we do we get like the double climax because there's this big you know sort of epic rescue out but again the 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 funny part being too that like these are all the people that are about to play this this tremendously geopolitically important and crucial game and and hours before you know the the ball drops or whatever they're gonna go and Get fucked up fighting a bunch of commandos. Yeah, they like or... limp onto the court. <laughs> yeah, they're really worn out. Yeah, one yeah. of them gets shot in the arm, and it's like, fuck, you know, one of their star players or whatever gets shot in the <laughs> arm. Like, holy shit, you know? Imagine having to explain that to the to the the TV sponsors. Like, the game can't go on. the The North American Alliance team got killed before. The I game. mean, there is a moment on the broadcast when they're like, "We checked the locker room. The team is not in there." <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine, dude? Uh, the fucking the, the the ABC executives like losing their minds, you know? Like, yeah, thinking instead that they may have to shift their coverage into World War as opposed to just the game that they folks, had set up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah things war. are really taking a turn here. Yeah, but it is it is a double climax, and they do win. Uh, the The final game completes Dean Kane's moral arc as he uh, designs the offense to run through Becker and not himself, suggesting very wisely that everyone thinks I'm going to take every shot. Uh, so why don't I pass the ball for once? Yeah, and specifically he says, you know, I'm going to try to break the assist yeah, record. Yeah, he's still got a hot dog in right, for his yeah. popularity <laughs> index. He's such a fucking piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I gotta say, Dean Kane has to be, you know, next to Durkee, the most, like, unlikable protagonist that we've ever had on oh. the gauntlet. God, Dude, he wears yeah. a backwards Kangol. Multiple <laughs> seats. <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling you, dude, that's why when you you texted me, Ryan, you know, it was like, boy, I can't wait to like hear everyone's take on the the, the political uh, situation in this film. I was like, I was like, man, free Hawaii, bro. Like, I wanted them to win. I wanted them to kill his ass me in too. that fucking like rescue op, you know? I was really rooting for the helos on that one. Absolutely. It almost felt like the scene when Dean Kane made sushi for Vanessa Williams that it felt like a purposeful affront against the like pan pacific oh, yeah. uh, commission because they were like making sushi but then it, it, this is like a trigger for me almost seeing it on screen watching them like 
take bites of the sushi as opposed to eating the entire sushi piece in one bite and everything was like spilling out of it i was like you fucking maniacs like what on earth dude i specifically wrote down eating sushi like a psycho i was like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, he calls he calls them his his spicy pharaoh rolls so again yeah. <laughs> like what the fuck dude how can you insult the japanese and the egyptians in the same moment like yeah he did it it's that 1998 vibe, you know? And in those final moments, you know, we've been talking about all of the the predictive things that this film has, has gotten correct and some things maybe it was a little off by. But, you know, only time will tell in terms of the final prediction of the film. And that's when one of the staffers for the Future Sport team, Anarchy, walks over with her little headset to Trey to congratulate him on the win. And she says, President Clinton's on the line. Tell Chelsea I'll call right back. Okay. So only time will tell. 2025. Oh. Is Chelsea going to be the one leading us all? <sighs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in all the meanwhile, uh, there's a synthesizer uh, score by Stuart Copeland from The Police Playing uh, <laughs> as everything that we talked about happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I did find, like, the energetic uh, Dickerson camera work to be there. I mean, I think it's very telling when we saw him talk at the music box he, you know, he gave us a little insight into his life. And he said, basically, you know, paraphrasing, like, I'm a nerd from the 70s. Like, I wanted to direct genre films. That's all I ever wanted to be as a kid, a film director and do sci-fi and do horror and do all this different stuff. And so I just appreciate him as, he, you know, someone who takes it seriously, whatever the job is. And like, this mm -hmm. film is lacking in so many fucking ways. And he makes it watchable. He really does. Like, it moves. It's fun. Uh, it's got a good mix of things going on. And however stupid or absurd they are, like, it's committed filmmaking and it's serious filmmaking. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Dickerson can hang his hat on that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's not He's not guilty in this case. I don't think the deficiencies of this film lie in, in the hands of Ernest. I think he... He gave an earnest effort and did the best he could with, with what he had. Ernest goes to the future. Oh, boy. That's a that's a good, I think, cap on, on discussing future sport because I think it, it, it speaks well to the director of the other film that we watched, The Sisterhood, who very similarly is a guy that, that spent his entire career working exclusively in that mode and, and I think is a sort of very kindred spirit to, to Ernest Dickerson in that vibe. Uh, Sirio H. Santiago, I'm speaking of, the director of, of The Sisterhood, who had a very lucrative and and very... Uh, prolific. Prolific career, and uh, particularly like partnership with Roger Corman, uh, the, the sort of legend of, I think, these types of projects that you're sort of describing, you know, mm -hmm. of, of taking a bunch of bullshit and a bunch of different weird sort of pieces and recycling things and, and throwing it all together and, and still like giving it your all and taking it seriously for, for what it is, even when the stated goal is a piece of like DTV genre schlock. 
Absolutely. And just really quick, one other thing these films have in common is that people go from having no uh, apparent martial arts abilities to having a lot of martial arts <laughs> abilities uh, in a very short amount of time. And I, uh, I, you know, that's like a good, you know, low budget genre film thing. Just all of the sudden, everyone is doing martial arts. <laughs> you're like, what? Yeah. Um, and and that's a good movie to me. Yeah. You know, you, when, <laughs> when everyone yeah. can just randomly fight yes in a very well choreographed brawl yeah i also like to think that chelsea clinton uh survived the nuclear blast and she thinks that she is the president of the world in the sisterhood as well well she's probably the reverend mother but we're burying the lead. Yeah. We're burying the lead here. You know? The other big thing, of course, these films uh, have in common is their synthesizer soundtracks. And uh, to be honest, I think the soundtrack from The Sisterhood, I, I need to get a copy of that. Because it's like some really good 80s analog synth stuff. Kind of sounds like a Sega Genesis soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, so I did appreciate... Yeah, the, the pairing of the broke-ass production and the retro kind of sword and sorcery costume look with this, like, minimalist uh, score. It is tight. Yeah, I mean, it keeps, it keeps it moving. It keeps it cool, you know? I'd like to have, like, a cassette of it, you know, that I could rock in the car. Yeah. Or, yeah, one of those portable cassettes that, like, they find in, in the bunker. Exactly. When they're scavenging in the desert. One sort of departure in terms of, like, what these two movies are and, like, their modes for being. You know, when I was looking into Future Sport, I discovered, I don't know if you guys uh, found this, but that it was also, like, the reason this was also a made-for-TV movie was that it was it was meant to be a sort of, like, test pilot for a TV series. Did you, did you guys come across that? No. And clearly... Um, didn't do so hot, right? <laughs> In terms of like, you know, uh, lighting up people's attention. But you know, despite that, you know, it's 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 a it's a TV movie. It's ABC, you know, and and it's got a, a Ernest Dickerson behind it, and it's got at at the time some some big names. So on the other hand, the Sisterhood is is a Filipino production, more or less, like a Filipino American co-production, like total cheapy and it's it's from a dude who was a part of the Corman machine and like Corman you know they understood like hey keep it cheap the cheaper the better let's just recycle everything we'll recycle props we'll recycle ideas in some cases let's even just fucking recycle footage you know like we'll take whatever we got and and we'll just slap it all together and throw it out there and if we make 50 bucks we're already up, you know, yeah, <laughs> like totally. we're already, we're already <laughs> in the black, you know? And so the ideas don't really matter, you know? I mean, I've seen a whole bunch of the, the sort of like Mad Max knockoff. Yeah. Mad Max exploitation. Yeah. Right. And, and all they were, were attempting to do was just sort of like cash in on, on the aesthetic more than anything. And just the, mm -hmm. the basic framing story of, Nuclear war, now we're in an apocalypse. Let's just shoot the thing in a fucking quarry, you know? <laughs> like, nuclear war ravaged everything. I mean, you don't see, like, wrecked cities, you know? You don't see the the the, the carnage of what this did to, you know, the civilized world. It's, like, an excuse <laughs> no. to just go, like, shoot wherever, like an, an abandoned factory, uh, uh, yeah. a, a field, somewhere near the ocean, and, and maybe some old 
former fort or mission or something like that. You know, there's like a Catholic Essentially mission. anywhere that just doesn't cost any money at all. And whatever you know? the uh, army of the Philippines is willing to donate to the production in terms of Jeeps. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 100%, you know? But I think for me, part of why I I settled on this, as I, I sort of mentioned in my preamble, is that, you know, a lot of the, the idea of, like, the wasteland and these sort of Mad Max knockoffs is that it's centered around... Uh, a Mad Max-like figure, this this dude, this loner guy, and and it's about you know that sort of like idea of individuality and like this is where the world is taking us and and the best thing that you can do is just watch out for yourself and and in spite of that sometimes the heroes get wrapped up in you know helping people the townsfolk you know whatever but here we 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 have that somewhat inverted uh we don't have the film centered on a a loner hero and and particularly like a a male protagonist the idea here is that the hope of the wasteland is sisterhood perhaps right that it's it's in women and women who are uh, as it's explained to us in the prologue seeking to spread peace and equality throughout this this you know wreckage of of the past so you know for me i think that's kind of what makes the film stand out other than that it's a very standard knockoff you know road warrior funny enough this ethos was something i noticed in the only other serio santiago film i've seen which is 1978's vampire hookers starring john carradine and it's also has that quality where the woman vampires in the film are their their prey are these like horrible sex pest military men who are kind of using their military work also as sort of like sex tourism in in, in Asia. And they, they, we watched that film very recently. That was our like pumpkin carving film this year. But I, <laughs> I, I found myself surprised by the way that the woman um, and their, j- just what their, what their goals were within who, who their, uh, their prey was mm-hmm. as, as, as these vampire hooker predators. Yeah. I enjoyed watching the film wrestle with its own hypocrisies, right? Because yes, it has that centered as the narrative, the, the sisterhood is the hope of the future. Uh, while also we get, yes, one obligatory quasi-sexual assault scene where we see boobs, and then later in the film where we get uh, a handful of softcore-esque women chained up, exposed uh, shots and scenes, which is obviously kind of at odds with the core kind of like, not even message, but just vibe of the movie, you know? Like, it's about the sisterhood, you know? The men are these grotesque kind of Hobbesian rapists, you know? Just grunts. But yeah, I mean, there's also the other moment where there's like a brief sort of lull in the in the action and the chase uh, where you have the sisters in like a, a sauna. They're in like a little hot tub or something like cleaning the dust of the wasteland off of themselves. And you do see a little, you know, yes. you see some 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 full frontal there as as well. But again, right, that's that's the Corman 
Yes, that's the core that's, ethos, that's right? That's in the contract. The, I know. Yeah. Let's let's keep the let's keep the boys at the drive balanced. <laughs> yeah, let's keep them. It's happy. another quality that this film has in common with Future Sport. Features like two topless jacuzzi scenes. Oh yeah. Well, I hope there's a topless jacuzzi in my future. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and specifically at a a wasteland bar called Dynamite Willies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially once we get to meet Dynamite Willie. That's a one of my favorite moments of the film is this bar scene uh, where things get out of order and the owner of the bar, Dynamite Willie, is revealed to have that nickname because to restore order in his bar, he lights a stick of dynamite and starts screaming at everyone, uh, and he's really hamming it up. Stop it! Stop that goddamn fighting! It's against the compact! Stop it! Stop it, I said! God, God damn it, I'm this place now! You want you want you want three days! Three days till you get the that stop! Stop it! I'm gonna blow this place up! I'm gonna blow this place to Alright, now listen! I'm gonna blow this place to Kingdom Come! Get out of my car! Now! Get out! <laughs> I might be crazy, but I'm not stupid! <laughs> yes. I mean, if you've got a nickname like Dynamite Willie. You, you gotta earn that shit, and, and he yeah. certainly does. It's like a spaghetti western moment, you know? Just this, yeah, very anarchic, goofy aside. I also love in that moment, you know, and again, like, you have to understand, if you've never seen something like this, that there's gonna be plot holes, there's gonna be things that, that don't really make a whole lot of sense, that if you took a screenwriting 101 class, uh, you'd, you'd probably get lit up for. Somebody would definitely take you to task for it. And that is that in that particular scene, you know, you have this character, Mikal or Michael. Again, I, I, it's one or the other, right? I heard it both ways yeah. in the fucking movie, probably depending on the actor, you know, and how much. I heard it said as Miguel at one point. <laughs> right, you know, like, I, I bet there were a bunch of different accents on the set. So, you know, the, the actor himself might not have been fully sure what his own name was supposed to be. But it's established that this guy, the the leader of like the the brutes, is looking for the sisters. Like that's his mission, you know? And and he had like a a, a near moment where he was able to he thought he was gonna be able to capture them and and they got away and and they they used their their witch powers to turn the tables on him and escape and and he's looking for him and he's got his band and he's like, you know, let's all meet back at Dynamite Willies, you know, and they head to Dynamite Willies. And it turns out that the sisters are also at Dynamite Willies. The people he's been chasing the whole time are now also in the hot tub at Dynamite Willies, <laughs> like showing their boobies, you know. And I'm like, what the, f- what the fuck's going on here, right? The wasteland might not be, I guess, that big that we thought that there's only no. maybe one bar that everybody kind of hangs out at, and, <laughs> yeah. and the people you've been chasing the whole time are sitting there, like. Yeah, there were like lots of talks of kingdoms and then territories that were ruled over different lords, but it did sort of seem like everything was in like a 20 mile radius of each other. Oh, yeah. 
Easily. Yeah, there is a, a lot of talk about the, the epic shit that happened before this movie started, and not just the final war that leveled the world, but specifically the Western War, which is a, a, a war that happened fairly recently because they talk about, like, being a, a part of the Western War, some of the characters in the film, like Mikal and the, the Sisterhood. And then there's a lot of reference to the Battle of the Twelve Trees, which is where uh, a lot of sisters were captured in battle. And it's like, yeah, we don't see a fucking minute of that, of all this hot war action. <laughs> no, we're in the wasteland. We're, we're doing a chase thing where everyone's always catching up to each other on purpose or on accident. <laughs> but I mean, it is, you know, it is like the laziest film structure in the world. You oh, just yeah. bounce back and forth between the two parties for 90 minutes until the film ends. Essentially, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, on a certain level, you know, it's almost kind of Shakespearean in that sense, you know? You, you, you're trying to figure out a way to get all that epic scale. Well, you know, the Battle of Hastings is going to take place off stage, you know? Like, <laughs> and the guy's coming in being like, what a battle. I do want to point out, though, too, that, that Mikal, a.k.a. Michael, a.k.a. Miguel, while he does have his own band, they are hiring themselves out to, to various lords and other people because at the beginning, he is working for a warlord and they're looking for spare parts so this warlord can, can get his machine running his again. His war wagon. Yeah, his war wagon running again. You know, that scene is incredible because even though this is like a Mad Max knockoff, like there is this warlord that we get introduced to here and he's giving them this mission and he gives them the mission with this incredibly rousing and I think very well written speech for what it's supposed to be because he's sort of like with kind of like religious overtones talking about like nuts and bolts and, you know, rotator belts and all these things and like worshiping technology and like that that's going to be the savior for these 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 men this is all that they have left right is somehow trying to to resurrect the ashes of this dead world and he starts it <laughs> off with this like I had a dream <laughs> you know? yeah I was gonna say is this the one where he channels MLK yes yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a dream and in it the smell of gasoline yes it's like oh my god dude and it's it's fucking tight you know it's actually really good really good and the thing is you know, that kind of like language and terminology and like mixing like automotive, automotive phrases with like, you know, religious kind of like iconography uh, we saw in Mad Max Fury Road, but that language wasn't used by George Miller in The Road Warrior or in Mad Max. But it's like, George Miller. Santiago influence. Dude, I'm telling you, like, George Miller, he's got to have, like, seen this and been like, man, actually, that fucking speech, that's how they got to (laughs) talk. Because they didn't talk like that in The Road Warrior, really. But anyway, he gives this rousing speech, and it's like, fucking tight. Okay, this is the mission. These guys are going to go out there looking for parts. And then that is immediately scrapped. And they do not ever pick up that thread again. Like, and it is just (laughs) that Warlord's gone. Bye. See you. That actor did his one day on the fucking set. Give me, yeah. a, give me a second here. I think, I think it's because, right, they're, they're sent out and they go on the raid where they raid Maria's town and where yeah. we're introduced to her. And in that, 
Mikal kills Maria's younger brother, presumably her younger brother. And there's like a throwaway line after this raid where Mikal says, you know, the warlord has us killing children. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, he's never seen or heard from again. <laughs> right, yeah, so yeah. it's just like this one, yeah, I guess, you know, Mikal is throughout the film then given depth, right? He is, uh, yes, he's a brute, but he isn't just a brute, yeah. right? There is deep, deeper motivation. That surprised me yes. in this film was the amount of depth that McCall is given throughout. Like, he's a reflective villain. He he was really put off by the fact that he stabbed a little boy in the belly and killed him. Yeah. And and and, and when there's moments of, like, threat of sexual assault, you know, he, he stops it. And, and throughout, he, he's like a tortured villain, and that's, like, not the sort of thing you would... He had more depth than the Hawaiian Liberation Organization (laughs) in Future Sport. Because he does also reveal, like, his past and that he had a sister and he loved his older sister when he was, like, a boy. But then when she turned 18, she was whisked away to join the sisterhood. So there is this, you know, again, if you want to do some work for them, right, and and certainly probably what that actor was, like, desperately holding on to. (laughs) That guy's like a a soap actor, too. And you can tell just how, Mm, like, handsome, soapy he looks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, like, he's given it his all, and and he does have this sort of, like, monologue where he explains that, you know, he had a sister and she was taken away, and he hates the sisters for presumably, like, just taking away his, his sister, right? And so that's like his big bone to pick with them, but he does kind of respect them, you know, in his, in his way. He doesn't just see them as like pieces of meat. Right. Yeah. Like he wants to destroy them because they stole his, his older sister or whatever. They broke up his family and that's where it's like kind of personal for him. But the other guys are these sort of like two dimensional stock you know like marauders and grunts raiders yeah but but i i think you're right i mean like there is a lot more surprising kind of attempts at at like characterizing him but again yeah that's kind of all we really but yeah i mean i do think like the the film does have the overall project of poking holes in the male fantasy element of these kinds of movies and the deepening of mikhail speaks to that and how he is contrasted with everyone and specifically you know speaking of colorful side characters like dynamite willie there's a very colorful (laughs) side character at this caravan that mikhal runs into and i didn't catch his name but he has uh one eye or the actor is pretending to have one eye Uh and he's this very creepy guy who who in the middle of like a, a dispute you know mikhal's guys kind of get into it with the caravans you know just macho ego shit guys start fighting toxic masculinity yeah just toxic bros are fighting in the post-apocalypse and this guy who's leading this caravan just kind of like saunters out of the tent and is like i'm i'm busy (laughs) (laughs) and then then he's just like do whatever and then he goes back into his tent to have sex (laughs) 
and it's the weirdest fucking like minute and a half of this very weird movie. Yeah, like and it, it does really stop everything like dead in its tracks when he does like as you say, kind of like saunter out in his silk robe and like this thing he's doing with his face where it's like he had a stroke or something, you know? And yeah, he's just like keep it down out here, you know? And everybody does like everybody stops fighting. Yeah. It's like man, this fucking guy. Like, yeah, you don't need future sport to settle your differences. You just need a weird guy to be having sex and to just calm everyone down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, chill out, man. Like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's also like, you know, again, in seeing in some of these B-movies at times, like shades of, of a director's perhaps worldview or sensibilities. And I, I think it's, it's not uncommon to see in a lot of these B movies, you know, at times kind of ideas of toxic capitalism as well and 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 that kind of thing. And, and you have a little bit, right, because the men are also trying to A, resurrect war. They're trying to resurrect the machines of war. And they're also holding on to symbols of like, yes, commerce. Like the caravan thing is like this also kind of like market where things are exchanged, people are exchanged, and they talk about the price of a woman here, you know? And, and yet the system seem so uninterested in any of that you know they are of course in a very corny way kind of these like earthy you know like wiccans or whatever right that are uninterested in weapons of war uninterested in commerce you know and and as i mentioned right they 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 hope to spread peace and equality and and those are of course like kind of just like hack ideas that are that are cheaply thrown around in a cheap movie but but they're always there in a lot of these in a lot of films like this and and i think it's interesting to note sirio santiago the director of this film i discovered in a, in an interview with him you know while he's talking about his his long partnership with with corman and and he does point out in the interview that that he directed something like 40 films for Corman and, and Corman made something. He, he has all the numbers. Serio has all the numbers. And he says like Corman made 400 films. I made 40 of them. I made 10% of Corman's entire catalog myself, you know, and he's very proud of that. But then later in the interview, it, it's almost like a throwaway thing where he mentions, you know, well, the guy's like, you're so prolific. You made so many films. You were always working. And he's like, well, you know, I, I took it upon me to be an ambassador for the Philippines and for the, the Filipino film community. Like, I, I, I really took pride in that. But also, you know, with my productions, I, I was supporting about 80 Filipino families. And so it was very important for me to make sure that they were always working in that work. This guy was like a surrogate, like, grandfather to, like, 80 families in the Philippines. And, like, I do feel like, you know, some of that has got to be within a guy like this, this idea of, you know, egalitarianism and, and brotherhood, sisterhood, family, like keeping things together and, and making sure that everybody gets their fair share. Like Avengement. <laughs> yeah, like Avengement, sure, you know? Yeah, well, speaking of other, you know, gauntlet callbacks, this film has a lot of Beast of War vibes, I gotta say it, you know, in terms of being a, you know, it's not a grand desert tank chase, but it's a, a broke quarry chase, yeah. you know, uh -huh. with some cool vehicles, you know, there's 
uh, army jeeps and camaros fitted out with rpgs and three-wheeled motorcycles going on uh and yeah we get you know the classic uh thinking man's villain uh who's being chased and chasing <laughs> uh so we got a lot of that going on but yeah i mean you you can tell again it's like this is a guy that worked at the the speed of fucking flight you know like yeah. not even the speed of thought faster than the speed of thought and we had talked about how even though it, it lacks a certain sense of scale both in like the world it's created the space and also that some battles are sort of just occur off screen we are treated to a good amount of sword play and hand-to-hand combat and i i must say you know we're talking about a numbers game here i i this movie has more like slashed bellies of any film i think i've ever seen there is like non-stop inserts of dudes getting their bellies like sliced across from all of this sword play there's also a pretty good decapitation early on there is there's there's a nice decapitation and again this is like some of the like i think where you get some of that recycled footage as well because like those inserts uh, are probably inserts from God knows what yeah. other film Santiago made using those, yeah. you know, but it's like clearly in the editing where a guy gets swiped at and, and they're just kind of like, Oh great. We got this good bit of, uh, you know, gore effects we had from Nam angels or whatever. Let's just throw There's that even in there. a bunch of recycled actors within the film itself. A lot of the people that are in the initial battles, I recognize some of them during a later nighttime sequence when they're chased by these nuclear lepers throughout the woods. And some of the grunts that are kind of hunched over and chasing after them, when you could see their faces in the light, I'm like, I saw that guy get his belly slashed like not <laughs> 25 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the 80 families in Santiago's, you know, taking <laughs> yeah. care of, dude. Well, and I gotta be <laughs> honest, close. you know, just like the just like the Hawaiians in Future Sport, the Filipinos in the Sisterhood, they get a raw deal for uh, for purposes of representation, of course, because all the major characters are white and the Filipino extras are mostly playing radioactive mutants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are people they come across in the wasteland that are uh, like, you know, there's this one guy that Mikal comes across called Lord Jack, and he's just like a Home Depot dad. Like, his delivery of his lines is so funny to me, because he's like talking about, you know, the problems with being a warlord, and it just sounds like a like a contractor explaining, like, you know, why why they haven't got the deck built yet. You got a Bob Via vibe. (laughs) It does, you know? And yeah, and then the only real, like, yeah, as you mentioned, like, Filipino presence are yeah just this this sort of monstrous kind of horde that seem to be just just trying to chase the women down because what else do they they do but that does you know as they're being chased you know in the woods by by these these yeah these radio well they're guys they are running the gauntlet in that (laughs) sequence they are they are indeed uh running a gauntlet that's when they discover the bunker uh the women come across this this military bunker and and this is where i think um you know some of the 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 real kind of head scratching anachronisms of the whole kind of setup of (laughs) 
whatever the time frame of this movie is exactly. supposed to be really emerge. As I was watching and we ended up in the bunker and this is finally when we're given all of this information about the past, I started doing the math and I was trying to figure out like what could possibly be the timeline. And of course they were bringing up the fact that th- there was this great war, it was this nuclear fallout, but that's this is when it's first introduced that it was the United States and Russia. I mean, of course it was implied it was something that you would assume was the, the fallout, but it's said explicitly here. Our protagonist, Myra, has never heard of the United States or Russia. And when she's being told this by Ali, Ali is saying it as if it's self-evident that like, oh, of course you would have never heard about the United States. Like this is like old mythic knowledge. But again, this film is supposed to take place in 2021. And when she's revealing this information, we see that they've got like a portable cassette player that wouldn't have been around until 1979. And plus you assume that regardless, the time frame for this has to be sometime between the 60s and 1988 when this movie came out that the nuclear fallout happened. There's no way like I just I can't imagine a scenario where this like collectively despite the fact that you know a nuclear apocalypse has happened and presumably wiped out all forms of communication and all information that in the year 2021 no one would know the United States or even what a radio was when she sees the portable <laughs> cassette player she's like what is that and they're like oh yeah. they they were able to take music with them music could be heard they don't even have the lingo for what the devices are yeah and it is like an 80s pop song that that is like playing on the on the, <laughs> yeah, the walkman exactly. you know yeah she says uh music yeah but it comes out of a box The old ones could make music without using instruments. That's what Reverend Mother always told us. Of course, I never believed her, but it's beautiful. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Like that great, like, Nintendo score that they've got going on. Exactly. That's what I thought it was, yeah, like a referential moment to the the killer soundtrack. But, yeah, this thing had to take place in, like, 2121. I mean, I mean, look, you know, you you said twenty twenties, and I I struggle with a couple. This film very proudly says all over the poster twenty twenty one. No, like, I mean, I'm I'm agreeing with you. Like, it's like <laughs> yes, it says twenty twenty one, but like nothing really adds up, and particularly in the bunker scene, <laughs> it all really again that's the the ha- the house of cards when it comes crashing down, you know, because yeah. They not only the tape player, but they come across some some rifles. They come across like M16s and some AK47s. It's like, what are these? It's like, do you even know how to operate those? And it's like, no, maybe there's a manual around. That's what the girl says. So it's like, you know what a manual is, but you don't know what a fucking gun is? Or what the United States is. Right. And you got attacked by guys with RPGs yeah. on, on motorcycles. It's like a gun is like a gun is older than a fucking motorcycle in the history right. of humankind, you know? It's even more primitive if you think about it, right? <laughs> yeah, I definitely think it is totally plausible that when that script was written and when it, the film was produced that if they had decided on 2021, then like, sure, I, I believe that that's what they thought they were doing. But just taking their own logic to, to court, I, I don't buy their vision of what their alternate 2021 is. <laughs> I buy it because... <laughs> You know, like, why would she know what any of that stuff is? Who would tell her that? You know, I don't know. Nobody. Anyone that's like over the age of 30. (laughs) No, if they were third. No, if they were 30, they were born in 1990. There are people in that movie that are over 40 years old. Who were babies when there was a nuclear event? Well, they wouldn't know what the fuck shit is. I hear you, Marsh, but, but also like it wouldn't have just been like, 
the nuclear holocaust and then we we just start with a bunch of babies like there's gotta be <laughs> exactly. some adults around that would yeah, say chelsea clinton is in charge yeah, she's yeah. letting some or somebody know that would stuff. say like you know we really need to get our hands on some guns there used to be guns around like guns <laughs> yeah. in this new post-apocalyptic wasteland guns are gonna be important you know the motorcycles are cool but like guns are gonna help look you, know? you can't prove to me that there's more people in the world than we see in this film <laughs> You know, look, if there's only like 500 people left, then, you know. But our but our main character, Mariah, is wearing like Levi's and like a nice little button down shirt. I mean, some people are wearing like leather and fur and and she's there looking like an extra in a John Hughes. Movie, well, did you, you see know? the IMDb trivia about that? Uh, apparently, Santiago was a, a shareholder in Levi Philippines and he got... <laughs> Uh, and he got Levi's to invest in the film to throw a little extra juice on it by featuring the lead actress in a pair of Levi's Ah. because everyone else is in costume and she's just wearing jeans. Dude, Santiago. I know. The God, what a fucking genius. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was I was shook. I was like, that rules. Yeah, like Levi's Philippines throwing down some cash for the sisterhood. Dude, get it done. Very famously, Spike Lee got money from uh, Nike for uh, She's Gotta Have It shot by uh, Ernest. Did Ernest shoot that? He did. But really quickly, you know, speaking of IMDb trivia, because I just went to pull that up after you mentioned it, you got to bring up the, the other insane bit of trivia that's here that Lynn Holly Johnson, the actress that plays Maria, lopped off the index finger of stuntman Greg Rosero during one of the fight scenes with the prop sword. He went straight to the hospital and she reportedly felt devastated for the rest of the picture. Oh my God. <laughs> Maybe that's the, the haunted vacant look that she's wearing throughout yes. the, the movie. Yeah. You know? You know, there aren't a lot of experts uh, banging each other with these swords and axes and and jumping off of motorcycles. You know, I got to imagine it's a it was a very dangerous set to be on. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, and so once the uh, the sisters find this weapons cache of M16s, they also find their own war wagon, and somehow it's just completely functional and fully loaded, and they learn how to use it very quickly, Uh, and they they set out to rescue Vera, who's been kidnapped by Mikal along the way, and then shit starts popping off, and, you know, it just occurred to me now that the third act of this film essentially is like future sport, a commando raid. Oh yeah. The men, the, the, the toxic bros find themselves in some sort of, again, yeah. Long abandoned, uh, former Catholic mission in the Philippines. That's, (laughs) that's this, uh, pleasure city uh as we're as we're introduced to lord barrack kalkara yes kalkara the the great pleasure city of the wasteland but there don't seem to be many pleasures on hand it's just visible yeah it just seems like (laughs) an old abandoned like fort yeah i'd rather be hanging at uh, dynamite willies for sure for my little pleasure haven dynamite willies is the place to be but but yes so vera has been taken there one of the sisters who was captured by by mccall and it's also then revealed that Lord Beric, the man of, of, you know, seems to be like the mayor or the god emperor, whatever he would call himself at this place, also has a prison filled with sisters, prisoners from the aforementioned Battle of the Twelve Trees. So uh, we have a whole bunch of, of sisters that are here. And uh, unbeknownst, of course, to 
Ali and, and Maria or Mariah, again, a, a woman who had like several pronunciations of her name throughout the film, yeah. uh, they do lead this, this, this raid with the war wagon to, to go and, and assault and eventually break out the, the sisters. But uh, when they arrive, uh, another it's bit of... Yes, it's a trap, of course. The, the whole thing is a trap, and, and they couldn't have known that. <laughs> They shouldn't have. How could they possibly have known it would be a trap? Um, but but we then get introduced to another sort of, I guess you could say, tacked on aspect of of the supernatural or uh, the sorcery in this sword and sorcery post-apocalyptic knockoff. When the Reverend Mother, in a vision, reveals herself to the sisters as they battle with the men, uh, and the Reverend Mother, who's a vision that we only see like in uh, um, sort of like we only see her partially we don't see her face she's just this no she's of, just like light yeah it's yeah. just like a bright light beaming from from her face as she is sort of hovering in the middle of this room with there's all these bruised chained up members of the sisterhood kind of they their their faces light up at the at the sight of the sister mother and it's it's kind of a bizarre image of all these women sort of chained up and like very dirty and and have like scabs and bruises how they're just like smiling with their with their pearly whites as they see the the beautiful reverend mother as she's like giving her her transcendent sisters. speech yeah amongst them all and and the reverend mother sort of chastises the sisters you know the the heroic sisters who've come to break them out because she sees that they're using rifles she sees that they're using the relics of the old world, you know, of, of man's downfall. And she tells them, like, put that shit down. Like, you're better than this, right? And tells them, like, do not use the weapons of the past. Do not use the weapons of the old world. Use your gifts. Use the gifts that, that, that have been bestowed upon you. And so they do. They, like, put down the guns, and, and they're meant to just use their their sisterhood powers from this point out, you know? If you want to read it in this way, like, yeah, like, a, you know, this this statement about, right? Like, anti-war, if you will, you know? That, like, this is what got us here in the first place. We gotta, you know, that war wagon was cool. It helped you out, got you here to this point. But, all right, now we're gonna do it clean. We're gonna do it the sisterhood way. We're not gonna take part again in the cycles of violence and power that these men can't not seem to escape from. Yeah, and that happens even earlier with Mariah and Mikal, as Mariah has him dead to rights. She's holding like an M16 in his face and has every opportunity to kill him. And she puts it down, right? Anticipating ultimately the the message delivered by the ghostly apparition of the Reverend Mother. And then they just like dissolve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they do and then they cut to a shot of the the cool war wagon and it just explodes <laughs> yeah, it's dude. fucking awesome uh yeah very eisenstinian you know again they're like it just you know the power of the sisterhood is destroying yes this this old destructive technology and we even get yes the the former villain of the movie Mikal no longer the villain on the road and he he sees the sisterhood in their robes looking like a rusted root video walking in a line <laughs> you know and 
kind of smiles, right? And he gets a little voiceover, and and yeah, it's just kind of like, all right. He realizes, you know, in that moment, yeah. Like, they are the way. They are the way. You know, I've got to let go. I've got to put all this shit to, to rest. We're in a new world. That's right. And the sisters, the sisterhood is going to lead us to a place of peace and equality. So a much more utopian vision than future sport, yeah. which yeah, just reinforces the status quo, doubles yeah. down. And this, yeah, you know, looks looks to the future, to something else, you know. I think the sisterhood would make a really good future sport team as well. I think they um some of the values they embody would translate well to the court. They're very adept to technology, so I think they could handle hoverboards very easily, especially if they had a manual. Yeah, especially, dude, yeah. Although I do want to say, since we brought up the ending, like, I couldn't help but but think for a moment. And again, when you're watching a movie like this, uh, anytime you 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 start to think, uh, it's 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 gonna it's just only gonna distance you from the the, the pleasures at hand. But when the Reverend Mother like appeared, you know, and and then just was able to sort of do all that, like telepathically remove their shackles, and then yes, like just teleport them out of there and blow up the war wagon with her mind or something like that. It it, it did beg the question to me why she didn't do that earlier. <laughs> like these women seem like they've been languishing in here for a long time. Yeah. Like, where the fuck has the Reverend Mother been, you know? Like, the, the Reverend Mother works in mysterious yes. ways. Maybe the whole thing was arranged as a lesson for for, for our heroes. A cruel God, indeed. I like it. I like it. All right, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That looking at anything like this, you know, and I think this was part of, for you, Marsh, like the topic, right, was, was looking at, you know, visions of the future from the past and... It's it's easy when you get to those moments to now sort of look back at them and go like, oh man, woof, like wow, how quaint people's visions of the future used to be, right? Yeah, and how much that just says about them and the era in which they came from, you know? The, the DNA of 1988 and 1998 are just spewing out of these films, right? And especially because they are genre films and, and a TV film and a, you know, straight-to-video film, right? They are these kind of, like, ids uh, of the time, right? Just these kind of, like, unthinking, b- really bizarre, uh, bizarre things, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a general rule of thumb that sci-fi always reveals more about the present than it does with its predictions of the future. But I don't know. Future sport, it does seem to have some had had some ideas about where where we are today that I think it, it actually surprisingly got got right. But um Marsh, what, so do you have any visions of the 2020s that speak to you? Yeah. You know, I was thinking a little bit about this and realized I, I kind of gave you guys a hard prompt. There really aren't uh, that many movies, you know, set in the <laughs> no. 2020s from the past. Oh, I yeah. think like Soylent Green maybe is the, the most notable or famous uh, if you want to look at it like that. But one that I uh, would recommend to all the gauntlet heads out there is Highlander 2, The Quickening from 1991. In the last year, I've I've had a bit of a 
bit of a run with Russell Mulcahy, the director of Highlander 2, The Quickening. And, you know, I, I had, to be honest, I have not seen it in ages, you know, at least 20 years. But I liked Highlander growing up. I watched the TV show. I liked the movies. Uh, and from what I remember of the second one, it is uh, just absolute nonsense, like total crazy Mulcahy formalist uh, gobbledygook and I like that shit so I'm looking forward to revisiting it soon once I get my hands on the renegade cut version of the movie <laughs> holds up I can tell you I've seen it <laughs> so there can only be one yeah it was my topic this week of course and next week it's Andy's topic so, what do you got for us this time? Well, um, you know, recently I had come across uh, something somewhere on the internet news, or somebody posted about it somewhere. I can't really remember where, but but specifically, uh, it was a list of uh, former President Barack Obama's top films of 2021, and. Uh, I thought it was a, a, an interesting list, to say the least, and and perhaps, you know, revealing about his character. But there was a film on the list that I did end up checking out that I meant to see. And, you know, after, of course, it being recommended to me by, you know, President Obama, I figured I'd, I'd really better check it out. Um, and it was fine. It was called Old Henry. It was a, a Western starring uh, Tim Blake Nelson. And I, I kind of liked it, you know, it was, a, it was a Western, it was sort of a throwback. And, you know, before you think I'm going to go with some sort of Western theme here, uh, I'm actually going to go to the, to the more meta uh, level here of what I'm, I'm getting at. And this was a topic we've all kind of talked about in the past. And I, I think when we were even initially planning the podcast and had come up with a bunch of like uh, proposed topics for things that we could do, now is as good as time as good a time as any to introduce presidential cinema, right? So you can go see uh, Barack Obama's top films of 2021, but, but I'd like you boys to bring me a film recommended by one of our former chief executives. So bring me President's Picks. <laughs> You got as, it. Like, as in the sisterhood, I'll be referring to the uh, favorite cinema of Lord Barack. <laughs> as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I tell you, I can make this beauty run. All I need are a couple more parts. Look at it. This marvelous war wagon is perhaps the only one left of the old world. I can make this fighting machine come alive again. To thunder across the wasteland and make us rulers of this world. I had a dream, and in this dream was the smell of gasoline, the feel of lubricants, the sight of nuts, Bolts, bearings, every part that our beautiful war machine needs to do its wonderful work. That dream will come true. Tomorrow, we ride for Father Dan's compound. 
There lies the booty! There lies the dream! Tomorrow, we will have it! We will! I will be watching every move you make! Still! Pillage! Race! Do what feels good! But whatever you do, do not come back without those parts I need!